this morning, and welcome to 2023 Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So much fun to troll the secularists who can't drop A.D. off the date. Love it. You just can't get away from it. Jesus split time in half. <laughs> you can't ignore it. And, and may it truly be so, and may it, may it be the year of his coming for his bride, the church. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I didn't make any New Year's resolutions because I'm just not big on New Year's resolutions. I, I generally find that my resolve wanes by late February. Um, I, I really do have the best of intentions, I promise. But when it comes to actually doing the things that I said I wanted to do at the end of the prior year, I find it difficult to follow through. And maybe some of you can relate. Anybody relate? To, okay, good. I'm not the only one, right? Uh, I think this is a function of living in a fallen world. I, I find myself longing for all the benefits of a thing, but without the will to fully engage faithfully and to see it come to pass. And like most people, I, I can be fickle-hearted, and, and though I'm saved by grace and a child of the King, I, I still wrestle at times with walking in obedience and prioritizing God and His kingdom over myself and my little K kingdom. And I share that with you because this was the prevailing reality in Israel at the time of Jesus. I mean, yeah, these were all religious Jews, but they had the same problems internally that we have, the same struggles that you and I experience. And as we've walked through our recent texts about the feeding of the group of Jews and then the feeding of the group of Gentiles, I, I can't help but feel that I'm seeing elements of my own life through the lens of Scripture and and of course, that's one of the things God's Word does for us. It shows us ourselves clearly, even when we don't like what we see. <laughs> Humanity's propensity is to eagerly want all the benefits of God's kingdom without the moral responsibilities. And, and this was the case in Jesus' day as much as it is today. And so John 6, where we are this morning, I think is one of the clearest demonstrations of this reality for us. But before we go to the text, I want to remind us all that a text without its context is a pretext for a proof text. Is it too early in the morning for some of you? Let me, let me go a little slower. A text, what we read in the Bible, without its context, without the understanding of what happened before and after in the surrounding text, is a pretext, is an opportunity to proof text, to make, to make the word say whatever we wanted to say. If we ignore the context of what we're reading, we can end up in all the wrong places in understanding about what God's Word tells us. Context gives us the historical setting, who the audience was. Context helps us to understand the intention of the author. And this is why we've been reading through the harmony of the Gospels, verse by verse, chronologically, because everything from day one in this series is giving context to what we're reading right now. And, and so think about it this way. When you look at your Bible, the Old Testament, starting in, in Genesis 1, um, is giving us historical context and setting, who the audience was, helps us understand the, the, the author. Um, the Old Text gives context to the Gospels, which is why you need to read the Old Testament. And then the Old Testament and the Gospels give context to the New Testament. And, and I would just highly recommend, I know um, the, the ladies... Jen's already uh, communicated with the ladies about a one-year Bible reading plan. 
and our elder team is doing a one-year Bible reading plan chronologically through the Bible. And so I just want to encourage you this morning that uh, maybe your New Year's resolution that you're actually going to follow through on uh, would be to join us in the reading, a one-year Bible reading plan, and start today. Start today. What an incredible journey to read through God's Word together in a year. I hope that you would receive that invitation today. But as we look at John 6, I think it's one of the most hotly contested passages in all of Scripture regarding the doctrines of salvation. I think you could also lump in there Romans 9 and Ephesians 1. I think those three passages are probably some of the most confusing and misunderstood passages regarding salvation that are in the Bible. And that misunderstanding leads to wrong doctrines and wrong beliefs. So as students of Scripture, let's, let's read and let's think carefully and biblically to answer the major questions about the context of John 6. One last thing before we jump into the text. <coughs> Two last things, cough and then this. Um, this sermon I've been working on all week was initially going to take us from John 6.22 to John 6.71. I found by Friday afternoon I had 18 pages of manuscript. So I've cut it in half, and we'll do the other half next week so that you're not here until 1.30 this afternoon. It, it, it was just, it's just, there's so much in John 6. Um, so we'll do our best. Let's, let's jump in at verse 22. We're in John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowds saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus, and most, most of us would readily shout, Amen! They're seeking Jesus. Well, but, but, there's always a but. Motive matters. The question is, why? Why are they seeking Jesus? And as readers of the text, trying to understand what's going on, that's a huge question when you're reading your Bible. Why are the people in the text doing what they're doing? Motive is a big deal to Jesus as well. We'll see Jesus confront the motives of this crowd in this chapter, so hang on to that. So the crowd gets in the boats once they realize Jesus is gone, and they set out across the lake to go find him. The, the issue of motive here generates a larger question. Why do people in general seek Jesus? And there are lots and lots of reasons that drive individuals to seek the Lord, but not all of them are good or right or wholesome. I just encourage you to ask yourself this morning, what's my motive? Why, why do I come to church? If you're a sparse attender, you might ask, what keeps me from regularly worshiping with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Watching people in the body of Christ, you can always nail it down positively. You, you, you can eliminate some reasons watching people and, and listening to what they say and do. And people, like you, you guys don't, I don't know if you realize, people communicate. You're communicating all the time. 
right? We're always, always communicating, even if we don't realize we're communicating. And that's what's happening here. And it's going to become more clear in just a moment in the text. You'll see the interaction with Jesus and, and some of these people that are chasing him right now. Verse 25, let's keep going in the text. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And so they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is the work that God calls us to? It's to believe in faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you we'd get to it. Jesus exposes motive. He gets right to their motive. They were filled, literally, here, here in the Greek, the word is gorged. They were filled with that bread that Jesus multiplied. Their temporal, right now, this, this life, their temporal wants and needs were met, but they continued to ignore their pressing spiritual needs that would be satisfied by embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, how many people like that do you think are the Amer American church today? Lots. Lots. And so we need to preach the gospel always. Preach. Preach the gospel. Preach the word of God. There's a lot of people don't even know that that's, that's where they're at. In fact, Paul says to the Philippian church in Philippians 3.17, brothers, he says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now even, even telling you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So you just hear the crowd, cool, cool, Jesus. You do the works of God, Jesus, and you, do, you fed us lots of food, Jesus. We just, we just want the free food without having to work for it. We just want to be able to do that too, Jesus. And, and the work of God is not to make food miraculously or to trample nations down. Or even to heal the sick. God does those things in the world. But the work of God here, we're told, is to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the work of God. To believe in Jesus Christ, and the one who the Father has sent, and to submit ourselves under his authority and to make ourselves subservient to him. So Jesus is calling out the motive here. They're seeking him because he did this miracle, he made bread, but he's offering them an alternative motive. Don't work for physical food, work for spiritual food. In other words, make the pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom your number one priority. This is feeling like a New Year's Day sermon for some reason. I don't know, man. Everything else perishes. Everything else, everything else in life wastes away. Now, some people get confused here because of the word or the concept of, of working, right? Jesus tells these folks to do the works of God, and, and, and we good Protestant Christians hear that, and we go, works? Hmm, working? Uh, doesn't the Bible say that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works? And, and, and if you, I always, when I talk about this with people, I always hear the voice of an old rabbi, ha-ha! 
you know, it's like, yeah, aha, this is wonderful. Jesus uses wordplay. Uh, Jesus isn't, I, I don't know why I hear the rabbi in my mind. I don't know. Or maybe that's paw grape from the veggie tales. I, I can't really discern. Um, Jesus isn't telling them to do works in their flesh and in their own strength for salvation. And he's not inviting them to try to do the work of God in the flesh. In fact, he clarifies in verse 29. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in Jesus, the one who the Father has sent into the world. That's the work of God. And those uh, Jesus are entrusting with the truth from Israel. Now, you you got to grasp this. Are only a few select people at this time, his apostles and a few others. The rest of the people are being hardened in, a, in their already calloused and self-righteous, stubborn condition. Now, um, this is where I want to be really clear because there's a whole subset of evangelical Christianity called Calvinism that I'm going to have to address some of these doctrines and beliefs along the way because we don't always agree, even in-house, even as evangelicals, on some of these things. We get confused about what the Bible's saying and what it means here. And so I want to be really clear. Um, this, uh, this is not a condition, this hardening that you're seeing of these Israelites as Jesus is ministering is not a condition uh, from birth due to the fall of man as Calvinists impose on this text. It's a condition of their own doing. This is a condition God is using to accomplish a greater redemptive good as he's headed to the cross And the proof of what I'm asserting here is that some of these same people who are hardened now will be part of the crowd that repents and believes on the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up and preaches that sermon in Acts chapter 2. So he's not hardening them because they're reprobated and damned for all eternity. He's hardening them for another purpose because he's got to go to the cross. He can't let them make him their Messiah and King now because he's got to go to the cross. So verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see and believe you? What work do you perform? It's like they were just with him. What? What are you talking about? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's audacious, man. Their hearts are set on the food that perishes. They want a king who's going to give them physical food at no cost. Their focus is on the, not on the eternal, it's on the temporal. And, and you just, I can't even believe the sheer audacity. They've been fed by God less than 48 hours ago, and now they're demanding more food and miracles. It's like, be our circus monkey, Jesus. Dance, monkey. Dance. Not only that, they attempt to invoke Moses and the Exodus feeding as in, in an effort to somehow obligate Jesus to coerce him to feed them more food? Give, give us some of that cool heaven bread like you did the Israelites in the wilderness wandering, if you're really God. I mean, they even appeal to the scriptures. Do you see it in the text? They, they say, well, hey, hey, Jesus, as it is written, right? It's written. If you're, if you're Messiah, it's, it's an appeal to something they think is authoritative over Jesus. And I just want to say, uh, guys, the, the one you're talking to right now is the word? <laughs> and Jesus said to them, truly, he's so patient. Oh my gosh, he's so patient. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses 
who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So there's a correction happening here because the word is useful for correction, which is why you ought to read through the Bible in 2023. I might just make that point a couple of times this morning. Um, you know, 2 Timothy 3 tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. How, much, how many of you guys want to be more righteous in 2023? Read your Bible. It's profitable for training in righteousness, that the, the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. You're thinking to yourself, man, I just don't know how to share my faith with people I'm just meeting at the grocery store. Well, you get equipped when you read the Word of God. Okay, so whatever whatever your challenge is related to your faith in 2023, the answer is in the Bible and you need to read the scripture. But here's Jesus's correction. With this crowd, it wasn't Moses that fed your forefathers. It was God, the father who fed your forefathers. And Jesus is setting the stage for a stunning comparison that points us to the wilderness feeding with manna as being a type of Jesus himself. But it's not Moses who plays the Jesus part. It's, it's the bread from heaven. The manna and Jesus are the, the parallel here. Okay? And so verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Again, motive is clear. We want a king who will miraculously feed us so we don't have to work for our food. They still have not understood what Jesus is actually saying. The truth that he, he's unveiling to them is still veiled to them because the bread of God, the, the bread of life, is Jesus who comes down, just like the manna came down in the Old Testament from heaven, and gives life. Just like food gives us life, we need food to live. So Jesus, we need Jesus to live. That's what all these feeding miracles have ultimately pointed to is that you need Jesus more than you need food. You need Jesus more. And it's just like Nicodemus back in chapter 3 of John. Or if you go to chapter 4, it's just like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, it's, it's, the same, it's the same issue. They're operating and thinking temporally in the, in the flesh, but Jesus is speaking about the eternal. And they can't make that connection. Yes, Jesus is the God who provides for the Jews and the Gentiles, but we ultimately need him and his word, and he is the word. We need that more than we need food. He gives us sustenance. He, he sustains us. And despite the crowd's understanding here, this is a quest that ought to be on the lips of every believer. We ought to be praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray when he, when he said, give us this day our daily bread. Not, not just the stuff we need on the table to, to live, but the word of God. We need the word of God daily. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this verse ties us right back again to the Samaritan woman in, in John 4. And, and now the promise expands to never hunger, never thirst. You know that Jesus has already said this in the Beatitudes. You remember in Matthew 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? They'll be satisfied. We are to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. That's what satisfies our longing. And so who, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, 
That's faith. Faith is not some mental assent to some facts about Jesus. In fact, the, the book of James warns us that even the demons have all the facts about Jesus. And, and they quake with fear when they think about the facts about Jesus. Faith in Jesus is believing on the one whom God has sent into the world. You know what it's like? I love Ray Comfort in his ministry, and I love his analogy. Uh, faith in Jesus is like putting on a parachute in order to jump out of a plane because the plane is going to crash into a mountain. By the way, little little tip for you in 2023, if you travel by plane, try to get the seats in the back. Don't sit in first class. You've never seen a plane back into a mountain. That's all I'm going to say. Um, faith in Jesus. Can you, you just see the picture in your head? Back into a mountain. I wish I had been in first class. You, you don't take that parachute and put it in your lap and sit down and read uh, a pamphlet from the, from the tray back about the history of parachutes and sit and ponder the metaphysics of parachutes. No, if they hand you a parachute on a plane, you put it on uh, and you cling to it tightly because you're trusting in it to save your life. That's saving faith. That's the gospel message. You don't just come to Jesus and say, well, I, I'd like to read more about the metaphysics of Jesus's life. Well, you can do that. But until you put Jesus on, you don't have Jesus. Until you put your faith in Jesus, you don't have Jesus. That's saving faith. Just like the plain analogy I'm giving you, the man or woman without the parachute eventually collides with the law of gravity, right? When the jump takes place, so will all sinners collide with God's holy law on the day of judgment. There's a jump coming for each of us, and we need to put on the Lord Jesus and believe in the one whom he has sent. It's so clear here in John 6. So we get to verse 36, and, 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 and Jesus says, But I, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. See, you, remember, you, know, you know the phrase, right? Everybody says, seeing is believing. And Jesus says, that's not true. You've seen me. You see me, and yet you do not believe. They saw, but they didn't believe. This is the contrast to the blessing that we receive in Jesus in John 20, when he tells Thomas that we are blessed because we believe. We, he says, there are those, right, that will never not see me, and yet they will believe in John 20. And we're, we're blessed because we've never seen Jesus face to face, and yet we believe. So, so verse 37, he goes on. Jesus still speaking. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever will come to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. What a promise. What a blessing. Verses 36 to 40. We need to slow down again and deal with some of the Calvinistic misunderstanding of soteriology. Now, if you're not a theology nerd like I am, soteriology is the subset of theology that deals with doctrines related to salvation. Uh, the, the, the Greek soter is save. And so soteriology, ology is the study of a thing. It's biology, all the ologies, right? And so 
Um, soteriology is a study of salvation. And so uh, we'll take a little bit of time. I want to unpack this passage here, 37 to uh, 40. <clears throat> so Jesus is the one who's speaking here, and he's telling the crowd that he's only come to do the Father's will, right? So according to this, what is God's will for Jesus? Well, the text says it is to keep us and set us apart, the ones who believe on him, right? So it's to keep us and set us apart. So we're being sanctified and secured for God's purposes. Do you know, do you know the progress of salvation? Um, we talk about salvation in three parts. You are justified. When you, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are justified. And I love the word justified because it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. The minute you believe on Jesus and put your faith in him, you are justified before God. And then that justification opens the door for you to experience sanctification, which is the process of actually becoming holy. Not just knowing some truths about God, but actually in your person becoming more and more holy. And then at the point at which you step out of this life and into the next, you are glorified. You get a brand new body. And, and you are glorified in the presence of God. And I can't even begin to conceptualize that reality. But that's what Scripture tells us. That's, that's what God has for us. We're being sanctified. We're, we're, we're secured for God's purposes. We will be lifted up in the future. We'll be glorified. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If you've been raised with Christ... And then seek the things that are above. He said, don't, don't get caught up in making your life about all the things on earth, but, but think about the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then, <laughs> big news, you will appear with him in glory. You get a new body. You, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. I used to not feel that way about glorification and glory because, you know, when you're young, you run and you, you, you're active and you do, and, it, you know, like now I'm coming up on 50, it's, it's creaking a little bit, man. The knees, ow. Glory sounds pretty good. <laughs> I don't know. Sounds real good. So Jesus promises to raise us up. Those who look to him will be saved, he says. This, again, this, this phrase out of the text echoes the, the, the Exodus wanderings in the, the, that um, chapter in the book of Numbers where Moses makes a bronze serpent and puts it up on the pole, right? And says, you have to look at that to be saved. They weren't worshiping the bronze serpent. It was, it was God's um, answer for them to do something counterintuitive and to trust him in the midst of it and not to rely on their own way. And so this is a backhanded comment here to those who thought they deserved or were entitled to the manna uh, in Exodus and, and who now, in this context, are, are demanding that Jesus make bread for them, just like Moses you know, called down manna. And Jesus is telling them that their attitude is more akin to the time when God had sent the fiery serpents among the people of Israel for grumbling, because they were only thinking about temporal things. And so this is the exchange. And there's an implicit, implicit warning here. Uh, not all of God's signs are lovely and sweet things, okay? Um, many are terrible and awesome in, in might. The fiery serpents uh, in numbers were a sign 
as were several other things like plagues in Egypt in the book of Exodus. And so in, in John 6 here, 37 to 40, Jesus is speaking contextually of what is happening while he's down from heaven. While on earth, God has clearly sent Christ to accomplish a specific part of his redemptive will. Is that will at this time to be a great evangelist like Peter in Acts chapter 2 and win thousands to faith? It's not. That's not why he's come. It's clear in the text that that's not the purpose. God's will is for Jesus to come down from heaven, train a select group of Israelites, those he's been given to be apostles, who will carry on the gospel to the rest of the world and establish his church after he is raised up on the third day. Here's where the confusion comes in for many Christians. Because our Calvinist brothers and sisters, and they are our brothers and sisters, they're taking something Jesus is addressing in his actual first century context, and then what they're doing is applying it to their entire systematic view of salvation for all of God's elect throughout all of time. And I think that's an example of proof texting. And I don't think it, I don't think it works. What our, what our Calvinist brothers and sisters unintentionally fail to see is that Jesus, while here on earth in the flesh, is actively and judicially blinding Israel by means of parables. Do you remember when we talked about this? When we read the parables? Why he didn't explain it to them? He's keeping a secret about himself. And he's speaking in parables to, to you know, keep that from just being right out in the open. And so um, he spoke, you know, he blinded Israel by means of parables, a spirit of stupor, provocative language, while only drawing to himself right now while he's on earth during his incarnation, a remnant of pre-selected Israelite messengers. Did you get that? What he's doing in the gospels during the incarnation is is developing and pouring into a small pre-select group of Jewish messengers. He's not preaching the gospel to the nations. That's their job. That's what they're going to do after he's commissioned them fully at the end of Matthew's gospel. All of this is to carry out the purpose for which national Israel was elected from the beginning. Go all the way back to Abraham or before he was called Abraham, Abram. Go all the way back to Genesis. All of this is to carry out the purpose for which Israel was elected from the beginning, to bring light to the world. Israel is the vessel through which the word of God has come, not just the living word, Jesus, but the written word. We got the word from our Jewish brothers and sisters. So Genesis 12, 3, God's promise to Abram, I'll bless those who bless you. I will dishonor those who, uh, and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families and nations of the earth will be blessed. How are they going to be blessed? By the gospel, by the word of God. Romans 3, Paul writing verse 1 and 2, he asks the rhetorical question, what advantage has the Jew? What value is it of circumcision? Paul says, well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God didn't send his word through the, the ancient Chinese people or whatever people group was living in China before they were called Chinese people. He chose the Jews. He chose Israel. 
The nation of Israel is God's chosen instrument to bring the word, both written and living, to the entire world. The reason for Jesus' audience walking away is not because God's rejected them before the foundation of the world, as Calvinism presumes. By no means. God's consistently expressed his desire for the repentance and faith of the Israelite people. And he's not done with them, by the way. I'm speaking at this moment. He's not done. They're they're walking away here in the text because God has sealed them over to their already rebellious condition for a time in order to accomplish his redemptive plan. That was prophesied. And we see the fruit of it in Acts 2. Israel's not rejecting God because God rejected them. Quite the opposite. God's temporarily hardening those in their rebellious, callous condition in order to accomplish redemption for everybody. That's Romans 11, 32. He's he's hardening them now to to do something greater for the entire world. So what's the intent of John 6? Is it, as Calvinism teaches, that God's condemned all men and women to a totally disabled condition from birth due to the sin of Adam and only irresistibly draws a pre-selected number of people for salvation and then leaves the rest of humanity without any hope of response to God's appeals to be reconciled? I don't believe that. I believe the intent of John 6 is to tell us the narrative of Jesus and his provoking Israel in their hardened unbelief, while at the same time drawing out for himself a remnant of divinely appointed messengers who will take the gospel into all the world, drawing at that time all people to himself after he has been raised up. That's what John 12, 32 says. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all unto myself. It's not the moment now. Don't get confused about this. I hope this is giving somebody clarity this morning. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven. And this wasn't the first time that they grumbled against him. You go back to Numbers, you can see it in the book of Numbers. The people grumbled against God and against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food. There's no water. We hate this worthless food, the manna that they loved like week one they're like this is the greatest thing ever week six we hate this food right and then the lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of israel died and there were two two reasons for their complaining and grumbling um not not in the in the israelites wanderings but here in the context with jesus jesus's claim to divinity was hard for the people to receive and his statement about being the bread from heaven means implicitly There's no more free food. That's what they're really upset about because they're in their flesh. So I am the bread from heaven. And now they're angry because they can't cannibalize him. That's not not good according to the law of Moses, right? So so party's over, guys. No more free food. Verse 32, um, 42, they said, huh, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? You get the undercurrent here? Mm -hmm. How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Now they attack Jesus' legitimacy. It's a nasty knock. Isn't this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? And they're they're referencing his supposed illegitimacy being, yeah, yeah, the virgin-born Jesus. Uh, What they're saying is, you're not divine. We know your mom and your dad, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? In other words, they're calling Jesus an illegitimate child how quickly their fickle hearts have turned. They wanted to make him king, 
And now they're turning on him. He was giving them food to eat, but now that there's no more food, suddenly they find this issue to be a point of contention. Oh, it was fine to overlook it as long as they were getting free food, right? Verse 43, Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's an interesting comparison and contrast in that Jesus is doing just like his Father, and so the Jews are doing just like their father, the devil. By their fruit, you shall know them, right? So parents, be on guard. <laughs> Your kids will emulate what you do, even if you tell them not to do what you do. So be careful. But this is an important statement here about our salvation and the role of the Father in it. We, again, this is called soteriology. The Father draws us and Jesus will keep us and raise us up on the last day as he promised. Allow me to use an example. Olin, you'll appreciate this. No one can join the army unless they've been recruited. And those who have been recruited will be trained. Tracking with that? But if we use... The Calvinistic interpretation method on this sentence, it would suggest that the army only intended to recruit those who would eventually be trained. But clearly, the army attempts to recruit thousands who never actually join and some who are never trained. So the clear intention of this sentence is to presume that the recruitment process leads to the joining of some who choose to join and that the joining of some who chose to join eventually leads to the training of those particular people. That's true for the Christian life. That's true for the Christian life, John 6, 44. Now take a step back from this, okay? We got to keep in mind a broader context of this passage because at this time, God has not completed his redemptive plan. I just want to drive the stake in the ground for you. He has not completed his redemptive plan. He has not sent the gospel to the Gentiles. So it's safe to say that he's not enabling all to come to him. Yet. Yet. We need not apply John 6 to the whole New Testament and to the whole church age as though God only effectually calls and saves some people. Instead, our Lord Jesus gives us the well-meant gospel offer. Do you know what I mean by well-meant? If you believe that God has already pre-selected some people to damnation and some people to salvation, and yet you stand up before a crowd of people and preach the gospel, you are being disingenuous because some of them are damned to hell. And they don't, they, they don't know, but they, they can't do a thing about it. You're preaching the gospel to people that God's already pre-selected to damnation. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So I believe that God gives us a well-meant gospel offer and, let, and then the offer is to all and he lets the individuals respond in faith or not respond in faith. And it's on the person, not on him. Okay? What I'm saying is that this text, soteriologically, is limited to the few that Jesus gathered while he was on earth, his apostles and a few other people, and I, and I hope that that brings clarity to you. It's, it's not about uh, theology proper in the whole context. This is specific to what Jesus is doing in this context. So I'll just give you two application points, and we'll wrap up this morning, and then we'll have the rest of the sermon next week. 
okay, because it's, it's still a lot. We haven't even gotten through the passage. Uh, application point number one, context matters. Context matters. I just want to remind us all that a text without its context is a pretext for a proof text. Okay? And when you, when you think about that, just think about John 6. For anyone who's honestly seeking the truth, a proper understanding of the Bible is imperative for him or her to secure an eternal home in heaven. For the skeptic, a true understanding of the Bible can lead him or her out of darkness and into marvelous light. This is what God's Word does. One of the most important tools for all of this is a correct understanding of context, biblical context. To read the Bible out of context is to open ourselves up to a load of trouble and to misunderstanding and misinterpretation. We can easily stumble into misapplication. There are a lot of misses here. We're missing a lot if we don't observe the context. So we read, we read often, we read in context to gain a deeper reverence for his word and his truth. And this is my job, okay? Um, My commitment to you, our elders team commitment to you, anybody who stands up here to preach the word of God at Emmaus Road Church, this is our commitment to you, that we labor to take the text that's over 2,000 years old and to explain it to you in terms and concepts that you can understand, to make it attainable, okay? But what does reading in context look like? Well, it looks like reading the Bible as a complete, cohesive piece that tells us a complete, cohesive history of God. It looks like the uncompromised truth, saying hard things, even though our culture might cringe at those hard things. It means sticking to the original author's intended meanings. It means reading with integrity uh, by considering historical and literary implications in a given passage. It, It looks like using the Bible in context to understand other parts of the Bible and knowing that the Bible can never contradict itself. Every apparent contradiction in the Bible is a mystery God is calling you and inviting you to unravel with his help. It's the journey he calls each one of us to. Context matters. That's number one. Here's number two, and we'll wrap up with this. Motive matters. Motive matters. Jesus calls people out on their motive. The the Jews in this passage were only seeking him because he did the miracle and made bread. And John 6 is packed with Jesus offering people an alternative motive to the cares of this world. He's offering them an alternative. He's offering an eternal motive with eternal joys and eternal pleasures in the presence of his Father and the angels. If they'll put it aside now, they can have bliss and glory forever. When Jesus says don't work for physical food but for spiritual food, he's saying that we don't need to make the pursuit of the things of this life our number one priority. We need to make the pursuit of him and his kingdom our number one priority. So let the motive of your heart be the unrelenting pursuit of the one true king. Everything else perishes. Nothing else matters. Ultimately, for eternity, nothing else matters. As we close this morning, I want to just once again highly recommend, highly recommend to you, find a one-year Bible reading plan and start today. As it just happens, it's January 1st. Hey, you go home and Read the first section of your Bible reading plan today. What an incredible journey to read through God's Word together in a year. Will you join me and our elders as we pursue God in His Word daily? You'll be blessed if you do. I promise you'll be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we 
trust you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness and grace, your mercy over us. Lord, would you unfold your word before us in the coming year? Would you give us the unction to stick with our Bible reading plans and to be in your word? We're going to find, even within the first week or two weeks, yes, the enemy will come against us. There will be distractions trying to lure us away, but the but the the depth of fellowship and being in your presence as we soak in your word, Lord, is unparalleled. Lord, would you move among us, we ask in your name. Amen. So Jesus promises to raise us up, and those who look unto him will be saved. Faith in Jesus is believing on the one whom God has sent into the world. It's like putting on that parachute in order to jump out of the burning plane. You put it on, you cling tightly to it because you're trusting in it to save your life. That's saving faith. If you can't honestly and sincerely say that you have saving faith in Jesus Christ today, please, please do not leave this room until we've had a chance to talk. The first day of 2023 could be your first day as a kingdom citizen. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.